shot wheels and cobbles, the clip-flop changing to a crunch as the cart turned onto the hard-packed clay of our lane. An unmerciful clang as the twenty-gallon churns hit the curbing stones, the thundering sound of the tumble churn, only silence for the long, low hiss of gas to escape. The pat-pat-pat of butter pads, jingling harness, hobnail boots, smells of horse sweat, cow dung, new milk, wet grass, sour milk and buttermilk, mingling with bacon and eggs and burnt porridge. Our house was like a railway station. Hundreds of people coming and going at all times of day and night. A dairy shop in the centre of the city with maids and a cook. Roundsmen, men, cattle jobbers, foremen rowing over with my father. Shouts and roars over who's on early. Old men singing songs in the middle of the afternoon. No one ever took a holiday. Seven days a week. Christmas day and all. Two milkings, two deliveries. Race home by four o'clock for your Christmas dinner. Even when someone died, the blinds were drawn, but the door was always open. We were a dairy. Where men said, Great weather for the animals, thank God, and never to care for themselves. The dairy boys were kings. They had a kind of uniform. Claw hammer coat, work shirt with a stud, moleskin knee breeches, blue rib stockings and yellow-green hobnail boots. The lot set off with a milker's hat, the badge of office, an old felt hat, the front bashed flat, down over the eyes, caked in cow dung as hard as cement, polished to the finish of marble from being pressed against the cow's warm flanks. The milkers. First milking, 4am. They milked, cleaned, watered and fed the cows. Went to the pub, got roared and drunk, and where they fell, they slept. They woke for second milking, 1pm. Went to the pub, and where they fell, they slept. It was a way of life that had come to the 20th century undisturbed from the Middle Ages. None of them ever married. They were called boys. That fascinated me, for none was under 70. No one seemed to know their names, or if they did, they never used them. Nicknames were all they ever went by. The Lamb had no teeth. Goby the Wall had one shoulder higher than the other. spring Jack hopped when he walked. And Step had a short leg. Pixie Ears had got pointy ears. The Maggot and one was called Tulip. Don't ask me why. But for of all of them, my favourite was Bogey. And Bogey was a Bogey. No one seemed to like him, for he was always round and let people down when he wasn't well. I'm not well. Oh, I'm not well. He was the oldest and had worked for my grandfather. 
His proud boast was, my grandfather had won him in a card game. I was with this old farmer, had got me to herd and fair. In those days you had to go with a man for the whole year. Well, no, just the 11 months and two weeks, before you got your money. <laughs> Some of them wouldn't lend you a shilling for a shirt. He was like that in any way, and I was lucky. I was only after, he was only after herding me, and I was standing beside him in a public house, and he starts playing cards with our grandfather. After a while, they're shouting, What are you going to put on it? I put him on it, says he, pointing at myself, and me standing like a gobjaw, thirty years of age. Right, says your man, turns as a card, and won me fair and square, and I've been here ever since. Bogey was too old to work. He just drove the wholesale milk from the yards to the shop, and in the summer from the fields to the shop. He was never known to draw a week's wages in his life. Every day after a second delivery, he'd stand and roar for his money. There was no need for this. I think he just liked to roar. For Miss Stone always had his three half-crowns ready, hidden behind the butter scales, which everybody knew about, in case she wasn't there when he arrived. If I die tonight, the boss will be drinking my money tomorrow morning. Give me me money now. But Bogey was my pal. For when any of us were sick, he'd always bring you flowers. Cowslip, buttercups and daisies. Once my mother was sick, he brought her primroses. And in the springtime, he'd make nosegays for the horses' winkers. That'll keep the flies out of our eyes. But it never did. When I was three, this big mad world took shape around me. Diddly doity. The cook sat in the wooden armchair in the kitchen, lit in jigs and reels, hence diddly doity. All day long, shouting at the maids not to waste things as she filled her clay pipe endlessly from a big black tea caddy with the Chinaman on it. She bounced me up and down on her knee as she told stories of banshees, headless horsemen, the walking dead, pictures fallen off walls and men who'd been in America for 40 years, seen cut and turf yesterday. A sure sign they'd die the day before in New York. Upstairs in the hall, when you got a chance to peep, was even funnier. Big churns of milk being poured and splashed into smaller serving cans. Steam from boiling water, endless washing, crates and crates of bottles being topped by carbo discs with one press of an enormous thumb. But watch out for the dummy. He came once a week with two bags of turf, an act of charity, two d a bag, that was given away because Mammy said it's full of fleas. Outside the door... Mid horses stamping, motor cars and madmen shouting in the streets were musicians. Killarney straddled a bench and played an Irish harp. He'd a long white beard and sang by Killarney's lakes and fells. He came into the shop and bought a penny packet of Killarney biscuits. He was unusual for he was a customer as well as a character. That strange thing, customers. That children had to hide from. Customers. Don't let the customers see you. It's very hard to understand when you're three why nobody would want to see you. Especially when you heard what the shop girls and your parents had to say about them. Did you see the dirt of her jug? I had to wash it before I could put it near the crock. And their names were even stranger still. Hairpin, ground rice, blue bag and aspro. The lovebirds, they were sixty and held hands. A little old lady with a flowery hat and a collection of flowery jugs. She never seemed to bring the same jug twice was called simply The Little Flower. The Boxer was our first customer. Every morning, 7.30 on the dot, a Rolls Royce stopped outside and we all ran out to look at it. He had bedroom slippers, bare legs, a dressing gown and a towel round his neck. Got out of his car and drank two pints of buttermilk slowly while shouting rude things about Devalera at my father. 
Oliver St. John Gogarty. The street, or out the front as it was called, at the door was up the lane by the side of the shop, was always in a turmoil. We were on the corner of a cross that wasn't a cross. So horses coming from one lane to our lane had to do an S halfway to the right, then a quick S halfway to the left. So was it any wonder twice a day you'd hear shouts and roars, Quick! Lambert Bryan has come a cropper! Run out and see the horse on its side and the contents of the delivery van all over the road. Don't mind the stuff sitting in her head. If she tries to get up, she'll break the shafts and kill herself. Hold on! Woo! And all with a little man in a hard hat, a green musty overcoat and highly polished shoes, ex-cavalry, rushed forward and obliged, sat gently on her head while all the rest took the harness off, pulled away the car and said, Now! They all stood back. All was silence. And hard hat turned gently round, keeping the weight with his hands on her head, leaped quickly back, clatter-bang, clatter-bang, the horse was up, and they'd rub her down. And as they yoked her up again, the conversation grew. Be the hokey fly. I don't know what happened. I'm coming right as rain in a jog. Give it the billy, and the next thing is no, I'm upended in the gutter. Mercy to God, it didn't hot the head. Did she throw a shoe? I think it was at the early openings. Don't you know you can't come out of that lane in a gallop? The corporation should have had straightened it out years ago. Bad says the same corporation that have the whole city in a state of flummox. As the horse pulled away, you could see all the people of the street return slowly to their work. Deaf Billy, the bookie's runner, would still be chatting to my son, Jemmy, the inventor of football double coupons. Mad Joe would be sent on a message for Mr McDermott, the surgical shoemaker that only made club feet, and Mr Bamrick, the watchmaker, would check his own clock against his watch before going to bury his head under his lamp in his own front window. And the corner boys round the Adelphi Billiards Hall would whisper among each other about a parcel they'd picked up from the car. Useless, for Lambert Bryan's only catered for hospitals. And crying eyes moan, his face covered in soap, half-shaved with a razor in his hand, went into his sweet shop. Miss French would waddle down the street to her antique tea shop and dust the cream buns. All returned to normal. It was a lovely sunny day as Barney the bread man entered the shop. With a tray of steaming bachelors balanced on his head, I stood by the dark red pitch pine buttermilk churn with a new jersey and short white corduroy trousers, my hand in one pocket. I would have had both hands in my pockets, but little boys' trousers only had one pocket in them. I don't know why, because little boys always need twelve pockets in their trousers for keeping things in. And rocking back and forth as I'd seen big men do, I said, I'm starting school tomorrow. As he slid his tray across the counter, he said, Aren't you the lucky boy? Oh, I only wish I was going with you. I really believed him. For I was in a state of excitement, my heart pounding as only a four-year-old's heart can pound in anticipation of the next day. When I packed my first school case, my lunch, a nagging bottle of milk, and everything left over from my brother's and my sister's school cases, two broken pens, bits of crayon, and half a well-chewed pencil. The case was cardboard, the size of a library book, and cost a whole sixpence. I'd had it for over a week. I wouldn't go to bed without it. The symbol of happiness. I couldn't wait to use it. A maid was delegated to bring me to the nuns. I wonder what that meant. We set out at a quarter to nine. The maid was a big, big girl. But looking back, she couldn't have been more than sixteen and very giddy. 
Her and I ran up and down every doorway that had a flight of steps in front and jump off the last two. She'd run away from me and say, I won't bring you to school, so I won't. I'm going to post your school bag and run up more steps and pretend to post my case in hall door letterboxes. I'd scream and she'd run down again. This went on till eventually we came to a big green pillar box. I will, I will, I'll post it. And she did. The little case just slipped from her fingers and disappeared straight down a big green pillar box. I started to scream and so did she. I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. But nothing would console me as I stood there looking at that silent green school bag eating monster, smiling with its mouth open and no teeth. I kicked it and hurt me foot and cried more. We had to wait for over two hours till the postman came and rescued it. She told him I had done it and he laughed and said, doesn't want to go to school, bold boy, and I couldn't say a word. Then to my amazement they made an appointment to meet again. And to this day, I'm not sure she didn't post my case on purpose. So I never got to school that day. My real first day, I was put beside Tommy Kyo. I had a great big rubber my aunt had bought me, the shape of a rabbit. He asked me for a lend of it, and when I turned my back, he'd eaten it. I said, where's my rubber? And he just opened his mouth, and there it was, a mass of small white crumbles. Nuns were very strict. Georgie and I were put out the communion class for laughing. A tragedy, but when we were allowed to make it, we did it on our own, an ordinary Sunday, and no one gave us money like they do on communion Sundays. On her day, my sister got over a pound, and my brother thirty bob. I got one and six from a few close neighbours. But Georgie and I stayed pals through thick and thin. Even when he broke the cloakroom door and I got blamed, fine five shillings and a note pinned to me back. We always tore each other's notes off. We even made our first appearance on the stage together. We'd been put out of the fairly delayed sequence in the school concert, forbidden to attend, locked out, for laughing. Walking round the grounds, a lay on us, nun called us in and gave us cake. Once inside the building, Georgie said he knew how to get to see the concert. Come with me. And we crawled into a cupboard and through a forest of wooden struts, he said up there. And looking up, I saw a bolt above my head. I pulled it back. We both stood up and pushed the little door. There was a blaze of light a sea of faces and a roar of laughter. We had entered through the trapdoor on the stage. I looked round and saw my sister dressed as a fairy queen. She dropped her wand with fright, the one my father made from an old brass stair rod. The noise it made made people laugh more. Two nuns plucked us from the stage and sat us on their laps in the front row. So we got to see the concert after all. Around this time, after school, we went to the park, St Stephen's Green. I had a burning desire to own a red scooter and I wanted it more than anything else in the whole world. It was bright, bright red with big white tyres and it had a jack that became a brake by stepping on it. I know because I had a go on it many's the time. And she who owned it was only seven. I was six. And every day we'd race into the green, up the hill and over the bridge and there would be Joe and Mr E. In the summertime, turn left and there they'd be sitting in the sun. In the winter, turn right under the big tree where the triangle of flowers is now and there would be Mr Egan and Joe. Mr Egan had a hard hat, hence the mister and Joe only had a cap but Joe had a big silver watch that timed our races round the centre while Delaney, the head gardener, stood guard by the bandstand. Mr Egan had a big ball of dough in his left hand hard bread dipped in the pond and rolled into a kind of putty. I know because I saw him do it once and he'd take a twist between his finger and thumb and roll it into a pellet and flick them at the sparrows. They were always there, 
just like the ducks, in caps and hard hats, and a faded fawn herringbone overcoat with eight buttons, surrounded by pellets, children and bird droppings. When Joe would say, ten seconds for that race, we'd all cheer, and he'd let us listen to the tick-tick-tick of his big watch, and Mr Egan would give us pellets to give to the birds, but we'd eat them on the sly, little dark grey muddy things that smelt of tobacco. Then we'd run to count the nails in Billy's horse's hoof. Five, no, seven. Then we'd run for our lives as we heard the scratch-scratch of a cross-gardener stick on the gravel, a big brown bent wood with a foot of tapered steel, and he'd stab at you with it, till once he caught a kid in the calf out of York Street, and we took him to St. Vincent's Hospital where the doctor poured all red stuff over it, but it didn't get better. We never liked cross-gardeners after that. Sometimes we'd look at the pictures of the foreign ducks in the glass case by the bridge, but not often, for we didn't like them because there were no pictures of our ducks, except the old grey goose, and we hated him, for he would hiss and chase you off the grass. One autumn I walked hand in hand with Red Scooter and our granny along the place where Mammy said the horse track was. There were brown dead leaves as high as us, and we kicked them and threw ourselves onto them. Our granny said, all things die in autumn. We face another winter, I've seen so many. When I got home I asked Mammy why we couldn't live forever, and she just said, Look at the man driving the tram round the top of Dawson Street. You couldn't drive a tram round the top of Dawson Street forever and ever. And suddenly, I wanted that red scooter more than anything else. For I could think of nothing better than driving a tram round the top of Dawson Street forever and ever. In the spring, she told me her granny died. And we made a big daisy chain that went around all the kids. And when it broke, we all fell down and laughed. Then we ran to the back of Vincent's Hospital to look at the dead people and dare each other to touch them ran down the lane, threw stones at the pigs in the yard and heard the bell ring at twenty to seven in Stephen's Green I knew we'd be murdered for being late for our tea. She told me her new parents were very cross. Then I knew she was an orphan. I left her home to their, her home in Dawson Street and they said nothing at all. It was eight o'clock in the morning. I know because I was awake since four. Blown out of the beds we were. I raced up Dawson Street and there were crowds there as trams turned cautiously on silver tracks in frost-covered cobbles, and a bobby in his helmet said, Come on, come on! And a man in a hard hat, it wasn't Mr. Egan, said, They're after blowing up King Billy! And she was there with her scooter, red and gleaming in the cold morning air. So we ran like the hammers of hell to the gates of Kildare Street. We looked across the pond and we could, couldn't see the horse, just the pedestal, and we knew we'd never count the nails in King Billy's horse's hoof again. I said, Give us a go in your scooter, and she did. I scooted all the way to the three lamps at Baggett Street and back again. Then we both went home for breakfast and we never saw Joe or Mr Egan after that. I loved chestnuts. Once I had a Conqueror 100. Well, the fellow who gave it to me said it was and I didn't want him to tell me the truth. In the season, Daddy took us to the fields where the cows were kept and brought back cans full. Only he made us throw out two cans for every one we kept. Them's the rules. In Golden Lane we tipped them out the window of the car. A rugby scrum of shaved heads for chestnuts in Golden Lane. Better than a grush or a lorry up at a wedding living excitement. When the green closed early, we went home by way of all the slaughterhouses. Listening to the squeals of pigs being stuck, cows being shot. And bet you a million pounds you won't watch through the crack in the gate while the Judas goat leads on the sheep. Searching garages for ball bearings to smash the glass or clay marbles of our enemies. Up the lanes to find old corks from bottling stores and pop them at each other in a war. Hunting round the horses' stables in search of votes to snare the pigeons. Or use as ammo in a pea shooter. 
while bottle caps made medals on our gansey. When we'd bikes, we went swimming at Sea Point and the strawberry beds in the Liffey. It's supposed to be harder to swim in fresh water, but we didn't notice. Blackberry picking in Lucan and Robin Orchards in Sandymount. Once when we were picking blackers near the Spa Hotel, we found a lane that was overgrown with them. We ran in and filled ourselves and then our cans, and I said, this is great. We, we could... We could build a hut and all. There's bags of wood. We could light a fire. And she said she could make blackberry jam. And, and that'd last all winter. And I said, yeah. And people would wonder where we were. Till someone said, there's real big ones up here. And there was. So we filled our cans and scorched home. The little toy dog is covered with dust. But sturdy and stone she stands. The little toy soldier is red with rust And his musket moulds in his hand Time was when the little toy dog was new And the soldier was passing fair And that was the time when our little boy them and put them there. Now don't you go till I come, he said, and don't you make any noise. So toddling off to his trundle bed, he dreamt of the pretty In the winter time, as I grew up, more time was spent at work than play. And Bogey being my pal, I worked with him. He looked after the Clydesdale, a big brown horse with hooves the size of footballs, covered with a skirt of long white hair that was plaited for the spring show. The wholesale floats and wash cars were his domain. The floats were long, low cars, as low as hay floats, designed to carry glass for plate glass windows. My father used for drawing milk from the centre field. They won't turn over, and earned his nickname Flats Malloy. The wash car was the opposite. It only went to the breweries for the wash, the cattle's winter food. A steamy mash of meal the colour of stale tea with sawdust in it. Well, that's what it looked like to me. 
The car itself was a great big barrel on two enormous iron-shod wheels with just two shafts and harness mostly made of chains and wood. So different from the high steppers of deliveries in their handsome rubber-tired serving gigs with highly polished leather shining in their brass surrounds with serving cans and measures gently jangling and dangling underneath. When Bogey wasn't well, I was warned to keep an eye on him. What I was supposed to do, I've no idea. Balanced on a shaft, four feet off the ground, with no seat, hanging on to freezing chains, mind your fingers in the traces, as they sawed back and forth, grinding grooves into the timber. It took me all my time to keep from falling, as we thundered over cobbles and up and down steep hills just thick with ice. The brewery queue was always long. The noise and shouts and roars over who's for tallies, a metal disc entitling you to two free pints. He took mine yesterday. Be the whole day you'd need six servants to look after him. Watch out for him. He'd build nests in your ears and let the other one out in flats. Oh, you'd have to light a lamp for him. As long as you don't light them at my tallies, I don't mind. And crowds of tramps and urchins, knockabouts and old people, pressing close with mugs and jugs or jam jars, begging for a drink of warm grain wash. Ah, oh, sir, give us a cure. Would you spare us up for the babby? Hey, mister, me mammy said you wouldn't let us down. Their famished faces flushing with the steam as heat and grain in that short time warmed up their dying embers. Others took it slowly up the hill to home to share and make a kind of porridge from off-spilled cattle feed. Bogey and his cronies round the corner did a roaring trade in sour stout and stolen porter. After hours of waiting in the cold, chasing kids away from turning on your tap or pulling out your bung, Bogey would return and say, Don't tell the boss, then burst right into song. She's far from the land and Marguerite were his favourites. But when he sang Molly Bourne, we were always late for dinner. He cried all the way through that and insisted on walking home. Bad enough if it wasn't for his little rests. Me waiting outside pubs with 200 gallons of wash, smelling like a brewery, and the car leaving big brown stains on the roadway. The horse would stamp her feet and shake her chains, impatient to be home. And the wits would say as they passed by, Hey Jem, is this your half day? All round the yards was full of life in seething tenements. Little Italy, with its battle organ grinders, punch and duty men, bird markets, coal blocks, hay stores and huckster shops that sold toys like... Hapney tops, skipping ropes and marbles, hoops and yo-yos, hummingbirds and fishing rods, and water wings, always out of season, food stores that sold cabbages and potatoes, sticks for fires, drums of paraffin oil among the fish and streaky bacon. Cocklemen and dairy boys drinking in the daytime, singing beggars, sang to women as they tended to their crumbling window boxes. Flower sellers loading up and sharing out before they start their rounds. Basket cars and handcarts, milk traps and dairy floats, jockeying for position. Up, whoa, there, hey, scut the whip, get out with that jimpertin' brass. Where's the pole? It's never where they're wanting. From here the milk flowed out to the posher parts of Pembroke Road, transported by handsome trotting hunters with rubber-padded hooves and delicate harness. High timber-coloured gigs with two brass churns, Hand-stitched leather splash bowers, reflecting light like glass, where maids in stiff starched linen collected milk in private cans with small brass plates, cream and china crocks with limerick lace for dust covers, 
some the shape of flowers, some crocs as cows with their tails for handles, their open mouths to spout. Nannies in full uniform pushed bassinets, sidecars and broughams, cabs and hacks waited at the hazard to be called by butlers to take old ladies to the doctors. Japanese shrubs, flowering cherries, lilacs and laburnum. It could have been a thousand miles from cows, but was just the other side of Stephen's green. Then one day, Bogey came without his horse. Consternation, panic in the shop. It's in the yard, he roared. It's in the yard. The foot and mouth had struck. The soldiers will be there be morning. I'll do the job myself. Then they calmed him down with whiskey. Next day, her and I, we mitched from school and cycled to the park. Saw countless thousand cows being shot. And waited till our own arrived. We knew, for Bogey was in front. A soldier let him shoot the first, and they threw it in a pit. As we scorched home, we never said a word. But we knew we'd never slide down hay again, or get a lift among the twenty-gallon churns. Walk the cows to grass on Patrick's day, carry calves into a stable, go blackberry picking, or even playing chestnuts. Run around the green or swimming in the strawberry beds, counting nails in horses' hooves, stealing apples. Roller skates and scooters gone forever, and bogey would never bring us cowslips, buttercups or daisies. Ever, ever, again.
Oh! 